You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the L.A. International Church of Christ Family of Churches, worshiping God in L.A. since 1989. Uh, you know that I'm a professor. Every once in a while, this is your phone, I think, if you want that back yet. Um, every once in a while, I will get a, a Starbucks gift card as a gift. I do not drink coffee, but most of my students don't know that. Somehow I made it through a Ph.D. in two children without taking up coffee. I am, I am strange. Yeah, that's true. It's not too late, right? Um, and not too long ago, uh, so I get this collection of Starbucks gift cards that are just in my drawer all the time. Um, yeah, right. Well, so I, so I, I often use them for other people. And, um, and in this case, my, my parents were coming to stay and they drink coffee. And so I just pulled them all out. I had three, I think, in my drawer at that point. And one had like five bucks on it and one had seven bucks on it. So I was trying just to buy a, a bag of coffee so I have something ready for them when they you know, wake up in the morning. And then, um, but that's not enough to buy a full bag of Starbucks coffee because it's ridiculously expensive. Um, and you can see why I don't take up this strange habit that you all have. Um, and so then I give them the third gift card and I, and I say, okay, just put the rest on this one. And she gives it back to me. She says, all right, here you go. You have $98 left on this one. I was like, 98? Some student gave me a $100 Starbucks gift card not knowing that I don't drink coffee. And unfortunately for her, I had already submitted her grade, so it was—it really had no, had no bearing whatsoever. But there it is. So you, you don't need to, you don't need to give me a Starbucks card next week. Um, all right, it's, it is great to be back. I am thrilled to be back again. I had a great time last week, uh, and I'm, I'm eager to continue on today. Uh, I, I wanted just to tell you a minute about myself because I didn't do that last week. Um, you got kind of the, the academic introduction, um, which is my fault, I suppose, because that's the bio I sent in. But um, <laughs> that's the one that's, that's already written. So that's the one I send around. Um, but let me tell you about where I'm from. I grew up in San Diego. right? So I'm not far from here, San Diego. Uh, I was baptized in the teen ministry. So I know we've got some teens here. Uh, it's hard to be a disciple and a teen at the same time. Uh, and so I'm I'm glad that you all are here. And, and I just want you to know, I know what it's like. I know what it feels like. Um, I um, went to college in Boston, right? So I grew up in San Diego, but my, my parents were from the East Coast. So I decided, why not leave perfect weather and go find the snow and, and other things like that. So I went, I went to Boston uh, and I was in the Boston campus ministry there for a number of years. And I studied, um, this may come as little surprise to you as you look at me, uh, electrical and computer engineering. I know, a big, big shock to, to all of you, right? Um, and uh, <laughs> you can act a little shocked. Um, and, and so I finished my degree in electrical and computer engineering at a small school outside uh, of Boston called Olin College. But in the midst of that, I discovered that my, my passion for engineering um, or I'll say it this way, my, my passion for, for teaching and understanding the Bible and the story of God outweighed my passion for engineering. Uh, and so I felt a call. I felt a call to be a teacher. Uh, I knew, for whatever reason, that I, didn't, that I didn't want to preach. I didn't want to go into you know, direct preaching ministry. I wanted to teach. I wanted to study. Um, and, and so from finishing my engineering degree, I went to Abilene Christian University, which is a Church of Christ University. And this was right when our movement was kind of going through its upheaval, its internal upheaval. And it, it was the right time for me to learn about where I had come from, where we had come from as a movement <laughs> and what we were doing in a sense and why we were doing what we were doing. And so I went to Abilene Christian University 
and and learned the New Testament there, learned and uh, learned Greek and learned how to read the Bi- read the Bible, how to read the Gospels well, was deeply formed there by by very many wise professors, and then from there went to um, Baylor University in Waco, and got a PhD. And, and my dream was always to be able to do essentially what I'm doing right now, which is to be able to give back to the church in some way, to take what it is that I had been taught and make it accessible to everybody so that we can all have a deeper understanding of who God is and what God is doing in our world and the story that God is telling. So that's, that's me in a nutshell and, and how we got here. And, and so now we get to jump back in again. This is part two, all right? So we're in this bigger series of how to read the Gospels. Last time was, um, you know, what are the Gospels? What kind of genre are they? What kind of literature are they? And today is continuing that idea, but then branching into a new idea. So, so how are they written? And then the kind of follow-up to that is, so then, therefore, how should we read them, right? So if they're written in a particular way, how should we read them? Um, we, we ended last time with these images, you might remember, right? The Paul Revere images. And I suggested to you that in the very same way that we think of these different portraits of Paul Revere and how we're not really bothered by that. We're not bothered by the idea that there could be many different perspectives of Paul Revere, that a painter can paint different ideas of Paul Revere and all of them can be true in their own way, that we should in fact read the Bible, read the Gospels in particular in that way as well that the Gospels can also be understood as portraits of Jesus, portraits from a perspective, which again doesn't take away from their authenticity, doesn't take away from their reliability, but what it means is we're getting a a particular perspective, right? We're getting an artistic, you might even say, perspective, that there is some crafting going on with this. And you remember we went through all those different words, which I've been mocked about now already, um, for who, who uses what words, but the point of that was not to you know, impress you with statistics, but was to help you understand that the different gospel writers have different ways of writing, right? that they have a different focus, that there's some who really like one idea, there's some who really like another idea. They even have different styles. right? There's some who just really love the word and or immediately or something like that. right? And so they, they write differently, and all of that is to help you appreciate what kind of literature this is so that you know how to read it well. Because you can't read well if you don't know what you're reading. Like that video that we watched earlier, right? If you don't know what the source is, then you're not going to understand how to interpret. And so this is a quick review. Here's what, here are the kind of bullet points that we figured out together from reading. Remember, we read the beginning of Luke. We read the end of the Gospel of John. We read this other guy named Papias who was writing in the early kind of second century about the Gospel of Mark. And we figured out some things about these Gospels and what they are and what they're not. They're not necessarily in chronological order. Luke claims to have uh, consulted eyewitnesses, but he doesn't claim to be one. Mark didn't seem to claim to be one either, although he based his preaching in Peter, he based his writing in Peter's preaching, also an eyewitness. So some of these Gospels are rooted in eyewitness testimony, but not written necessarily by eyewitness testimony, which is interesting, whereas John does seem to be more founded in eyewitness testimony. So we have a spectrum there. You notice, and we'll come back to this in our third class for this series. So next week, you notice how Luke began and he mentioned that he had written sources, right? That he consulted other written things. That's going to become important as we think about the actual composition of the Gospels and the order in which they were written. And we'll we'll hit that next time. And then there's obviously oral sources. People are telling stories about Jesus that they're collecting together. We talked about the audience, that it's probably written for believers, right? If If we're thinking about Theophilus, 
and who this guy was. He's somebody who had already been instructed in Jesus, which means that these Gospels are not written for people who know nothing. They're written for people who already have some awareness of the story. And so we have to know that when we get into these readings because they're expecting us to know something that maybe some of us don't know anymore that the original audiences did know, right? So we have to be aware of that. And then these are kind of the last two really important ones, and and especially this last one we're going to kind of drill down further into today. They are selective, not exhaustive, right? So we looked at the end of the Gospel of John, and John reminds us, listen, if we tried to write down everything that Jesus ever did or said, the world couldn't fill, uh, the world, we'd fill the, you know what I'm trying to say, right? There's so many books that we'd write that, that, uh, that, that it would fill up the world, right? The world couldn't hold that many books. Um, and so what he's saying is, we had to pick and choose, folks. We, we had to decide, well, is this story the right one to tell? Let's, let's focus on this one. And, and if you begin to recognize that your gospel writers are doing that for you, you'll begin to read the gospel a little bit differently, right? You'll begin to understand the story that they are crafting for you. And there's some value to that, which I think you will see uh, today, why that matters for us, why that can be important and valuable. Um, And then the point that we've already made, right, that each is written in its own style with its own themes and so forth. And we'll see that. Now, there was this one slide that I skipped last week that some of you were upset that I skipped. So I I came back to it. But you're going to regret that you were upset because it forces you to do some math. So I'm sorry about that. But you asked for it. All right. So here it is. Um, But this is reinforcing the same point. What did the gospel writers care about? What did they focus on? So here's what I want you to do. You choose one of the four Gospels, whichever one that you want to do. Pull out your Bible now and figure out at what point, just go by chapter number, right? Just we'll be kind of be broad on this. In what chapter does Jesus go to Jerusalem for the very last time? Which means from that point forward, he spends the last week of his life in Jerusalem and then he dies, right? So figure it out. So choose Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, whichever one you want. You figure that out. What chapter does Jesus go into Jerusalem for the very last time? And then here's where the math comes in, all right? Once you figure that out, then go figure out how many chapters there are total in that gospel and divide your smaller number into your bigger number, right? So in other words, let's pretend, right, that there are 30 chapters in the Gospel of Jeremiah and Jesus shows up in Jerusalem in chapter 20, then you do 20 divided by 30. And what does that tell you? That number is going to tell you the percentage of this Gospel that is devoted just to the last week of Jesus' life versus the rest of Jesus' ministry. That's what I want you to notice here for a moment. All right, so choose a Gospel, do a little math on, on your phone, in your head, whatever you need to do, right? Figure out what chapter Jesus goes into Jerusalem and what are the total number of chapters and come up with a percentage. How did this gospel divide up Jesus's life? What percentage is it going to be devoted to just Jesus's last week? And what percentage is it devoted to the rest of his ministry? And if you want to, maybe before you do this, if it's not too late, just just guess in your own mind what you think it'll be right beforehand. All right, I'm assuming that most of you have gotten a chance to do something like that, or at least you're on your way to that. Um, Let's do this. I'll just call out names. I'll give you all the numbers at once at the end. Who did Matthew? Raise your hand if you did Matthew and you want to volunteer the number. All right, what did you get for Matthew? I um, I just showed that this is when Jesus came in for the last time, so I didn't really... Okay, you didn't do the number. All right, that's fine. Maybe it'd probably be faster for me just to give you the numbers than to have you go through it. So I'll just do that, but maybe you did, so maybe you did your own numbers. So here's, here's how it falls out. Okay. This is the first time I've done this exercise. Um, 
Here's how it falls out, because I always run out of time every time I try to do it. So, um, All right, here's what we got. We'll just go up from the bottom here, because that's the way I built the graph. So, if you're in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus shows up um, in... Oh, I didn't write it down this time. I think it's chapter 21. He shows up uh, in, uh, in Jerusalem in chapter 21, and there's 28 chapters. So, if you divide that out, that, that means that there's about a quarter of the Gospel of Matthew, right? That makes sense. Yeah, 7 out of 28, right? A quarter of the Gospel of Matthew can tell I'm an engineer, um, is devoted solely to Jesus' last week. Just stop and think about narrative time for a second, right? Stop and think about the way a story plays out. Let's do the other ones, but keep that in mind because the other ones are even more compelling or some of them are. The Gospel of Mark, he shows up in Jerusalem in chapter 11 out of only 16 chapters, and chapter 16 is kind of short, um, but still, let's just you know, kind of be fast and loose with the numbers here. That's 31% of the Gospel of Mark. Almost a third of the Gospel of Mark is solely devoted to one week of Jesus' life. Gospel of Luke is a little more distributed, right? And we kind of saw the way he began his narrative. He said, listen, I was um, carefully investigating everything. So he's got a lot of other material. So for Luke, it's only about 20, 21% of, of the Gospel of Luke is devoted to Jesus' last week, which is still really significant. Like a fifth of the gospel is just one week of his life. But then we get to the gospel of John, which you've already noticed at this point, right? He shows up in Jerusalem, essentially in chapter 12, right? And there's only 21 chapters. Now we're, we're being a little bit um, cheating here because obviously after Jesus resurrects, we get a couple weeks after that here and there. But for the most part, John devotes 40, over 40%, we could say, over 40% of his gospel to just one week of Jesus' life. What's my point in, in demonstrating this to you? That, no, tell me, I really don't know. No, uh, that, that these gospel writers, if you want to think about narrative time in like slow motion or something like that, right? That these gospel writers, as they're telling their story, suddenly everything slows down when you get to the last week of Jesus' life. And they spend all of this time telling you what happened in these last seven days. Why? Because that's what they care about. Because that, in their minds, is one of the most significant things that Jesus does. And and it helps you maybe appreciate, and one of the bigger questions that I'm getting to now is this idea of, are the Gospels like biographies? Like, should we read them on the level of a modern biography that tells the story of somebody's life? And the answer, when you look at like a distribu- distribution like this, is to say not, not really, at least not a normal modern biography, right? This is a, this is a really lopsided biography, right? Imagine, um, again, a, a, a biography of Abraham Lincoln, right, where a third or a quarter or like 40, 40% of the biography is just the week before he went to Ford's Theater, right, and died. You'd say, wow, this is, this is a strange choice, right? There's so many other things that Abraham Lincoln did that, that aren't about the last week of his life. I guess this, I guess this author really thinks this one section is, is super important, wants to give me every detail of everything that happened. And yet we don't often think about that when we read the Gospels. We're just like, oh yeah, of course, Jesus is in Jerusalem. Here we are. It's the last week. And you don't look at the percentages. And, and again, the bigger thing that I want you to see is that the Gospel writers are trying to emphasize something. They're trying to tell you, here's what's important about our Lord. Here's what he did, and here's one of the most significant things that make him who he is and why we follow him. And you can see that when you distribute the Gospels this way and just kind of see the way that they choose to focus narratively what they choose to focus on. 
All right, so then that raises this question, what, what are the Gospels exactly, right? What, are, are they biographies? Should we, should we read them that way? What does this word gospel even mean? Why do we keep calling them that? So I'm going to define that for you. Uh, if you read Mark 1, verse 1, and I mentioned to you last time that Mark, as best as we can tell, and I'll give you reasons for this next week, uh, as best as we can tell, Mark is the earliest of the four Gospels. And in the opening verse of Mark, Mark uses this word gospel. And if you don't know what you're reading, you can almost read it like he's announcing the type of literature he's writing, like he's announcing the genre, right? So he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which you can almost read like the beginning of this book about Jesus, the Son of God. But that's almost certainly not what Mark meant when he uses that word Gospel. When they hear the word gospel, they're not thinking about a genre, about a group of books that we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, that name, you know, the gospel according to Mark, as best as we can tell, takes several decades, maybe even a, you know, a full kind of lifetime into the second century before people start calling them that, that they start using that term gospel to describe these books as individual pieces of literature. So when Mark uses this word gospel at the beginning of his gospel, what does he mean? He means what the word means in Greek, good news, right? That's all he's talking about. And there's some fun things that we can do with this word. There's a lot of words that you know that you don't know you know um, that are derived from this. So in Greek, euangelion is the word if you were to transliterate it, and it means good news. If you break that up, you can kind of see some things. So it's a prefix, eu, the eu there, and then angelion. Eu, you, you know some words probably, um, that have that prefix, and it just means good. So think of like a euphemism, right? Is something, the good words that are meant to replace something else, or a eulogy that is spoken uh, at a funeral, right? Good words there too. So you know that prefix, you. And then angelion, angelos, probably sounds like a word you know. Anybody guess it? Angel, right? And what's an angel? An angel is a messenger, right? So an angelos is a messenger, and in this case, a, a different version of that word, angelion, is a message, and so what do we have? A euangelion, a good message. And that's all the good new, that's all this word really means. It's, it's a good word, a good message. Now, how did we get this weird word gospel in English? Well, that's kind of a funny thing. Um, in old English, they would use the word spell as kind of a narrative, right? So that's a good spell, not like a magic spell, but like, oh, what a good yarn, a good spell, right? A good story, in a sense, a good message. And so if you say that word fast enough, good spell, good spell, good spell, gospel, it kind of comes out as gospel. And that's, that's where we get our weird word gospel. It's this weird old English word that, uh, that means a good story, a good message, a good word, in a sense. Um, what did it mean to them? All right, so we've turned it into this kind of literary genre. But when they, at least, even, even in the context of the Gospels, in the context of the first century world, when a Roman, for instance, would say, euangelion, good news, what did they mean? It, was, it kind of had more of a political meaning, a political overtone for them. Uh, they would say, good news, the emperor has just won a battle in victory, euangelion. Or they'd say, good news, uh, a son has been born to the emperor, right? And it's all, it's all kind of political stuff. It, it all has to do with the idea that the empire is succeeding, the empire is expanding, the empire has an heir. And that, typically speaking, would be good news for this world. And so it's actually kind of subversive. It's kind of neat when Jesus co-ops this word and says, you want to know good news? Good news is the kingdom of God is at hand. 
Good news is, later on as they talk about Jesus, good news is the real king, the real savior has been born. You say your good news is that an emperor has a son, but our good news is that the Messiah has come. And they're, they're kind of stealing this word away from their colleagues and saying, we're going to tell you what real good news is. And it's about the king, the reign of God that is at hand in front of you here on this earth and moving and expanding in ways that you can't even see. That's what the good news is. And that's what they meant when they talked about the good news. And yet, as I said, over time, we kind of also transitioned this word into not only describing the actual good news of Jesus and what Jesus did in Jesus's ministry and Jesus's message, but describing the stories about Jesus as the good news as well, as the euangelion. So it would be the euangelion according to Mark or the euangelion according to Matthew or so forth. And it becomes this literary genre in a sense. And so then that brings us to our next question. So what, what kind of genre is this? What, what are the, when we talk about the Gospels, how would the earliest readers, here's a, here's a question, a funny way of asking this question, which is anachronistic, but, but gets at it, right? How, where would an ancient librarian classify the Gospels, right? So they're trying to shelve the Gospels somewhere in their ancient you know, library of Alexandria. Do they put it in the biography section? Do they put it in the history section? Do they put it in the fiction section? Do they put it in, right? Where do they, where do they think these things belong? And there's a spectrum here, right? So on the one hand, are, are these on the level of, of what we would call, in a sense, modern biography, pure biography, pure history, um, objective, unadulterated, right? Unfiltered, just this is, this is exactly how everything happened. On the other end of that spectrum, you could say is, or is this kind of full of theological agenda and people have all these ideas about who Jesus needs to be and so they turn Jesus into that? Or is there somewhere in between? And as we've kind of been hinting at already, when you stop and think about it for a second, the Gospels make fairly poor modern biographies, right? If you, if you think about the way modern biographies are written, generally speaking, they're chronological, Generally speaking, they try to be very objective, right? They try to kind of take an outside stance on things to the degree that they can. Uh, they try to be very comprehensive, right? So a, general, an auto, um, a modern biography makes sure to carry, uh, to talk about the birth and then the upbringing and then the life and then the career and then the death of somebody. And just stop and think about that for our Gospels now for a moment, right? So for instance, how many of our Gospels mention the birth of Jesus? What do you know? Which ones do it? Call out some names. Yeah, just two, Matthew and Luke. Mark, Mark doesn't even talk about how Jesus is born. Mark, you, you, I, I talk about Mark as like jumping onto a moving train, right? You, Mark is going along and then, whoo, and then you're pulled along with it. Um, and, and Mark just starts the story in the middle of the story, right? Suddenly John the Baptist comes out of the wilderness and he's baptizing people and he's dressed really hairy, right? Like, okay, who's this guy? But Mark assumes that you know something. Mark assumes that you know part of the story already because he's not writing to non-believers. He's writing to believers and he's not trying to give you this comprehensive biography of Jesus. Right now, Matthew comes along and says, no, we can add a little bit more to this maybe. Right. Let's add a birth narrative and a few other things. Um, and Luke's got this birth narrative. But then stop and think about this. How much do we know about Jesus's childhood? Right. <laughs> do, how many stories do we have? One, one story. Right. We've got one story when Jesus is 12 years old in the Gospel of Luke. And that's it. So if they were trying to give us the comprehensive picture of who Jesus is and how he grew up and all that, they did not do a very good job 
But fortunately, I don't think they were trying to do that for us, right? They, they were not trying to adhere to whatever the modern definition of a biography would one day be. They were trying to write for their world and their audience in a way that their people would understand. And so there actually is an ancient category uh, of a biography um, in, uh, in the Greco-Roman world in the first century. And these gospels, they don't fit it exactly, but that's probably the closest equivalent that we have. And in stories that exist, that coexist with the gospels that you could call biographies, or you could call kind of stories about people and great figures and what they did, they often focus on whatever kind of importance or kind of miraculous things would happen at their birth, which our gospels, at least some of them do. They would focus on the great deeds that a person would do, which, of course, our gospels do quite a bit of. Right? They'd focus, they, you know what ancient works really love to do? They loved to find little quips, little like one-liners, little zingers um, that they could attribute to people and say, ah, if you want to know this person, know this line from them. Right? So think about how, how often our gospels do that. Right? Jesus says, uh, the Son of Man did not come to, um, to be served, but to serve. Right? That's a good one line. Oh, that describes who Jesus is. What other ones can you think of? Think of a one-liner that, that you know of really well right? that Jesus says at some point. Yeah. Okay, yeah, Jesus loves to say that. Right? I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. Right? That's kind of a, a common saying for the time. Yeah, something else that describes Jesus' character in some way. Yeah. Good, yeah. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right, yeah. Let the one without sin be the one to cast the first stone. Right, a good one-liner zinger. Other ones, yeah. Okay, that's a good one-liner. I don't think Jesus ever said that one. Um, yeah, okay, yeah. That they may have life to the full. Yeah, you're right. So that's in John 10, I think, yeah. Ah, yes. Oh, that's a good one, right? Don't let your hearts be troubled, right? Right? And he says, I have overcome the world, right? You can, you can summarize. The ancients love to do, not that they don't also have long narratives. They love that too, right? But they love to encapsulate an ancient figure with a good line. And our Gospels are filled with that. We call them now oftentimes pronouncement stories, where Jesus has some kind of great pronouncement at the end. What else do the ancient biographies tend to focus on? They love to focus on the death of a person, especially if they've had a noble death in some way. Did you notice that graph a minute ago, right? <laughs> that our Gospels focus and emphasize so significantly what Jesus did for the last week of his life, right? That's the bulk in many ways, right, of what the Gospel story is leading up to. And in that sense, it, it, they fit very well with ancient literature. Now, what didn't they care about? And this one's perhaps kind of interesting to you. They didn't care very much about chronology. It was not very important to them to get the order of events right. It matters to us because we come from this kind of modernistic world, this enlightenment, post-enlightenment world, where we really care about the order of things and we care about the factuality of things and the historicity of things and we want to line it up because we think somehow that, that real truth or real meaning is found if I can just order it in the right way. The ancient world, not that they didn't care about it at all, right? They don't just kind of throw things around in whatever order. But they care far more about theme, far more about character and emphasis than they do about chronology. They're quite willing to reorder events in order to convey a particular idea without in, any, in their minds in any way having lost sight of the truth of the figure, right? So for instance, and we kind of do this too, although we don't think about it in the same way, but right, if, you know, if I get home at the end of a long day 
And, and my wife says, how was your day? What, you know, what happened today? Right. I'll say, oh, it was a pretty good day. Um, I, you know, I, I had this great conversation with a student uh, who, was, who was really struggling, but we worked through some things and, and I feel like we made really good progress there. Well, that was technically at the end of my day. Then I'll tell her about this class that I taught earlier in the morning, right? But why did I do that? Well, I wanted to emphasize the thing that was kind of most important, the most salient for the day. I didn't, I didn't lie to my wife about the order of my day, but I just didn't emphasize it. And that's the way the Gospels are too. It's not that they're trying to deceive and not trying to say, ah, you we don't want you to know that Jesus really did it this way, but we're going to say he did it this way. They're not doing that. They just, they just don't care, right? It's just not important to them the way that it's important to us. And that will become very important in a few exercises that we will do both this time and then in the next round as well. So I want you to understand that. So then how could we define the Gospels? What are these things? And I've thrown up this definition by a scholar named Mark Strauss that I, that I like, I gravitate towards. He says the Gospels are historical narrative, right? So they're rooted in history. They're rooted in real things that really happened, but they are motivated by theological concerns. They're they're history that is shaped in a certain way. Remember the portraits, right? These are artistic portraits of Jesus, which again doesn't take away from their their viability, doesn't take away from their reliability, but what it reminds us is, is these authors are crafting a narrative for us. They're painting a picture for us about who Jesus is and what matters how he went through his ministry. All right, now, Ken told me that I can stretch you a little bit. So this next slide is going to stretch you slightly, all right? If you don't like it, it's Ken's fault. So here it is. (laughs) This is an ancient historian who has a fun name to say, Thucydides, all right? Thucydides. If I don't don't get ready to say it, I can't say it. Thucydides. Uh, He's writing in the 5th century BC. So we're talking, you know, 500 years before the Gospels. So, so take that as, as you will. It doesn't necessarily represent all of you know, human history and how things are being written at this time. But he's writing a, a history of the Peloponnesian War, this war between various Greek islands and states and so forth. And, and notice he actually gives us an insight into how he composed his history. I'm going to read this to you. And I want you to think about how would it change the way we read the Gospels if the Gospels were written this way as well? And again, this is meant to stretch you a little bit. All right, so he says, with reference to the speeches in this history, some were delivered before the war began, others while it was going on. Some I heard myself, others I got from various quarters. It was in all cases difficult to carry them word for word in one's memory, right? I I couldn't remember word for word every time somebody gave a speech exactly what they said. So my habit has been to make the speakers say what was, in my opinion, demanded of them by the various occasions, of course, adhering as closely as possible to the general sense of what they really said. (laughs) How do you sit with that? (laughs) Does it make does it make you a little uneasy? Right. Am I are you stretching a little bit right now? It's okay. (laughs) Uh, It's meant to stretch you a little bit. Right. So that doesn't what that doesn't mean. And let me emphasize that it doesn't mean that the gospel writers are like, well, I don't know what you said. Let's just make it up. Right. This will be fun. How many things can we convince people that Jesus said? That's not what I'm saying. Right. That's not at all what I'm saying. But what it does mean, and maybe you've never stopped to think about this before, is there probably was nobody walking around behind Jesus frantically taking notes every time he said anything. Right. That when you get to the Sermon on the Mount, you don't have a disciple there sitting. Hold on, Jesus, could you go back? Blessed are the what now? I didn't, I didn't quite get that down. Did you say cheesemakers? What did he say? Right? So you don't, um, yeah. 
that's probably not how the Gospels were composed. What happened was that Jesus did and said real things. Now, this may come as some shock to you, but he probably repeated himself a fair amount. I don't know if you have any preachers who do that at all. Surely preachers never repeat themselves or use the same sermon more than one case. Um, Jesus probably probably gave the same message over and over and over again as he went from city to city. His disciples probably got very used to hearing parts of the Sermon on the Mount, what we would call the Sermon on the Mount, right? To the point where they could almost quote it back to him, right? That they could that they had it partially memorized in a sense, right? And so the disciples hear this and they tell these stories. And then we talk about, you know, Luke kind of compiling all this together. And Luke finds people and says, okay, what do you remember about Jesus? And they say, okay, I remember this time that Jesus did such and such. And Luke says, oh, good. That's a good story. I can craft that into my narrative. I can work that in. I wasn't there. You weren't there. But you heard someone tell it. And so, so I can figure out more or less the kind of thing that Jesus would have had to say to this little girl right before he raised her from the dead or something like that, right? And, and so you get this impression that these Gospels are not inaccurate, right? They're not making things up but they aren't also necessarily conveying for us verbatim, word for word, everything that Jesus did and said in a given moment at a given time, which, which may be a little radical for you, or maybe you're very used to that thought, but I, but I thought it would be interesting to, to stretch your mind a bit here with that. Um, all right, so that, that leads us to then to this big question. This is the question that I'm kind of asking all along, but that I'm focusing in on right now. So, so then how does this change? how we read the Gospels, right? What if, we found, if we think of the Gospels as these stories that are portraits, that are crafted in such a way, that are driven not just by the Holy Spirit, and they are driven by the Holy Spirit, right? We talked about that last week to, to talk about how those two ideas are compatible. But that are also driven by a human author who has a particular audience in mind, who is trying to convey certain uh, ideas to that audience because he thinks that audience needs those ideas to draw closer to Jesus. How does that change how we read the Gospels? This image in particular that's behind me, I find fascinating. It's a picture, it's a painting, a portrait, right, by Rembrandt. And what do you notice? It's Matthew, and who's whispering into Matthew's ear? It's an angel. That's the way that medieval artists portrayed angels back then, right? Um, it's an angel, and, and the angel, yeah, right. <laughs> The angel is, 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 is whispering. This is how Rembrandt imagines the gospel is being written. That the angel or the spirit is whispering into Matthew's ear. Matthew's like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. I should write that one. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't think about that, too, right? And, and maybe there's, I don't want to say that that's not what's happening in the sense of, right, the spirit can move. And the spirit can move in ways that we don't understand, which isn't a literal whispering into somebody's ear. But I think we also have to understand that it's more complicated than that, right? Matthew's not a robot, that God, you know, God has taken control of, of his pen and written down everything for us. Matthew is a free-thinking individual who wants to decide for his Jewish audience how they can draw closer to the Jewish Messiah and understand that this Jewish Messiah did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it, right? which meant something to them in a way that it doesn't really mean to us until we kind of fully appreciate who they are and why Matthew wanted to emphasize that. So that's, that's kind of what we're getting at. All right, so here's the payoff. Are you ready for this? Because I know you're thinking to yourself, fine, right? The gospel writers are humans. They did their own crafting. How does that, what does that matter? How does that change how I read? Does that get me anywhere as I read? And, and yes, it does, all right? So here we go. Here's an example. Here's a payoff of how 
knowing something about the craft of gospel writing, this artistic portrait that in our case now Mark is painting for, painting for us, that you will get some insight into reading and understanding and interpreting the gospel well. I'm going to uh, work through a passage with you that perhaps has given you some pause in the past, maybe has confused you before, because most people who read it the first time through say, what? Uh, what, what is going on here? And, and to understand this passage, what you need to do is understand something about the way that Mark likes to tell stories. If you don't know how Mark likes to tell stories, you're not going to understand very well what Mark is doing in this particular passage. So how does Mark like to tell stories? He likes to tell stories in sets of three. Mark really loves sets of three. It's just like one of his favorite numbers. I don't know. Um, and in particular, we have a funny term for the way that we describe the way that Mark organizes stories. We call them Mark and the Sandwiches. Right? Are you hungry yet? Uh, and, and what does that mean? Mark likes to set up a story where he starts one story. And then before he finishes that story, he starts a second story. And you say, wait a minute, Mark, what are you doing? What? Like, let's finish the first one before we move on to another one. He says, no, 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 I got an idea here. Right? And he, and he starts a second story. And then... He finishes the first story and suddenly you realize that the way the first story ends ties into the second story that he started and you can't understand the second story fully unless you finish that first story. And it blows your mind. It's pretty cool. Um, and, and so we call them Mark and Sandwiches because it's kind of like there's, you got your two pieces of bread and you got your meat in the middle there, right? And so that's this Mark and Sandwich that he's building for you. And he does this all the time. He does this five or six or seven times in his gospel, depending on how you want to count them and how detailed you go. And so I'm going to, I'm going to review one with you. So go ahead and pull your Bibles out to Mark chapter 11. I've also put it up here for you so you can read along with me. And this is the new revised standard version, if you're interested in what um, version of the Bible I'm using here. All right. So this is... Uh, because we're talking about the, you know, the what Jesus's last week. So here we are in the, in the beginning, I should say, really, of Jesus's last week. At the beginning of Mark chapter 11, Jesus shows up into Jerusalem. He's done what we call now the triumphal entry, right? And he rides in. And now Mark makes an interesting choice, which you may not be used to or notice if you're thinking about kind of Matthew's version. Jesus shows up. He's just had this kind of triumphal procession in everybody's following him they've got the fronds and he's on the donkey and they're shouting hosanna and all that he gets to the temple he looks around at the temple and then he goes back to bethany because it's really late (laughs) and you're like oh what okay what why did you what was okay yeah what was the procession about then so he just he kind of looks around he just kind of takes it all in Bethany is just a short distance outside of Jerusalem. This is during the Passover. Passover, Jerusalem swells possibly up to a million people during the Passover time because so many Jewish pilgrims come in to celebrate this festival. You can't always stay in the city. Jesus has an has a Airbnb out in Bethany, right, where he's staying. So he goes back out to Bethany where he sleeps for the night. And then on the way back into Jerusalem the next morning, we get this scene on the following day. So this is Mark 11, verse 12. When they came from Bethany, he was hungry. It's morning, breakfast time. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. 
when you read this passage, <laughs> what is your first thought about who Jesus is and what he's doing here? Right? Yeah, go ahead. Right, okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> What's wrong with Yeah, what else? Well, yeah, what kind of spoiled brat are you, Jesus? Like, one, we know from previous stories that you can make food out of thin air. So why are you mad at this poor little fig tree? Right. Two, what does the narrative tell us? It's not even the season for figs. Jesus, why were you looking for figs on a tree when it's not time for figs to be on the tree? What's wrong with you? Right. And so if you just read this narrative and nothing but this narrative, you're going to go away thinking... This is weird, and Jesus is weird, and Mark is weird for telling the story, right? Why would, of all this, like, John just told us that there's so many other stories we could have told about Jesus, and Mark had to throw in the weird one where Jesus curses a fig tree. Thanks, Mark, right? Poor, poor decision-making there. All right, so, this is actually just the bread of your sandwich, but you didn't know it. So now we get to the meat, all right? So here's the meat. Then they came to Jerusalem, the very next thing that happened. And he entered the temple, this is a story you know well, and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching, saying, Is it not written that my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city, back to their Airbnb in in Bethany. Um, What do you think this story is about, typically? So when you read this, you're going to be afraid to answer that question now, right? But... um, when you read this, and, I, and if someone asks you, like, why did Jesus overturn the temple, right? Why did he, why did he knock over the tables and the chairs? What was, what was he doing there? What would you, what, what's your normal response? What's your first idea for that? What's it all about? Okay, righteous anger. What is he angry about? Okay, dishonoring the temple. How are they dishonoring the temple? They're selling. They've got these money changers, right? And, and that's not wrong. Clearly, that is going on. And clearly, Jesus seems to be somewhat upset about that. Especially if you read the Gospel of John, you see that's emphasized much more there. And it may well be that we have taken the way that John presents this narrative and kind of read it into the way that Mark presents this narrative. But there's actually something deeper going on here. That's not wrong, but there's something deeper. Jesus is enacting something here. Yeah, yeah, I had thought. Okay. Yeah. Ah. Ah, very interesting. Very interesting. Okay. <laughs> Hold that thought. Hold that thought. Now, what did you notice? Jesus, Jesus quotes a few things here, right? And if you have a good Bible, it probably tells you in a footnote somewhere what, what it is that he's quoting, right? So he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That's Isaiah 56. And then he says, but you have made it a den of robbers. What's that? We have that in Jeremiah 7. Go ahead and turn to Jeremiah 7. This is worth us taking a little pit stop in for a second. Uh, and I didn't put this in the slide, but I want to read it to you. What's the context of Jeremiah 7? Jeremiah 7 is when Jeremiah 
stands, and it tells us where he is. He's standing in the gate of the Lord's house. He's standing in front of the temple, the same, well, kind of the same temple, the rebuilt temple uh, that Jesus is standing in front of right now. Jeremiah is standing in front of the temple. And what does he say to these people? Where are we in in Israel history, in, in Jewish history? We are moments before, not moments, but we are years before the Babylonian exile, right? So if you know some of your Jewish history, the Babylonian King Nebuchadnezzar, they're going to come in and they're about to destroy the city of Jerusalem and destroy the temple. But this is unfathomable to a Jewish population, right? Because at this point, up to this point, their temple has never fallen. And what do they believe the temple to be? The temple is the house of God. The temple is where God lives. God is the supreme deity of all the earth. And no matter what we do, there's no way that he's ever going to let his house fall. We could do as much sin as we want to, but it's God's house. And and that just wouldn't happen. God would never go there. Right. And Jeremiah says, "Uh, think again. God is quite willing to go there. If you don't repent, in fact, God hates and detests this hypocrisy that you have where you say we can do what we want. We can live as we please. We can be adulterers and sinners and do anything and not give to the poor people and, and, you know, and take advantage of anybody. Oh, and then run into the temple and say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It's the temple. God will protect us here. And Jeremiah says, no. So listen to this. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's a little bit long, but I think it's worth it. Jeremiah seven. The word that came to Jeremiah is just verse one. From the Lord, stand at the gate of the Lord's house, proclaim there this word and say, and, and then listen for the quote, right, that Jesus does from this. So kind of keep your eyes, keep your ears tuned for this. Uh, and, uh, and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, you that enter these gates and worship the Lord. These are where people are going to worship God. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings and let me dwell with you in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Right, so whether they're saying we're, we're protected here because it's God's temple no matter what we do. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you act justly with one another. Listen, this is a great list of just oh, good ways to be. If you do not oppress the alien, the orphan and the widow or shed innocent blood, blood in this place, if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then... I will dwell with you in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your ancestors forever. Here you are, trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear after other gods that that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are safe, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers? There it is, right? There it is, a den of robbers. Now, here's what you've got to believe. And notice, and we're, we still have it up in the slide here, right? Do the high priests and the Jewish people know their Bible? Oh, yeah, they know it, right? And so when Jesus says, you've made this house a den of robbers, they're like, no, you didn't, right? <laughs> I can't get away with stuff, but that's, a, that's as best as I can do with that. All right, I'm sorry. I'm, yeah, I know I shouldn't say things like that. Um, but but that's, what the, that's what they're saying. They're saying, no, did he, what did, is, he just, is he saying that we're in Jeremiah 7 right now? Did he just call us 
the den of robbers that Jeremiah called them right before the temple was destroyed? Oh, right? And if you keep reading, he, in, in Jeremiah, um, he, Jeremiah tells them what's going to happen. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know, I too am watching, says the Lord. Go now to um, my place that was in Shiloh, another place where God once had a holy building to his name, um, where I made my name dwell at first, and, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. And, and now, because you have done all these things, says the Lord, when I spoke to you persistently, and you did not listen, and when I called you and you did not answer, therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, this temple right now in Jerusalem in which you trust and to the place that I gave you and your ancestors, I will do to this place just what I did to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight just as I cast out all your kinsfolk and the offspring of Ephraim. So, so when, when Jesus quotes Jeremiah 7 to them, what is he saying to them? He's saying, you're living in Jeremiah's world, folks, and you've got moments to spare. The, the axe is at the root of the tree. And so when Jesus overturns these tables and causes this uproar and knocks everything over, not only is he perhaps upset with all of kind of the selling and the marketing and the way that the temple has been misappropriated, what else is he doing? He is, like the prophets of old, reenacting something, right? He is demonstrating something. This is symbolic in a sense, right? He's trying to say, do you know what's about to happen to this place? It's about to be destroyed. Watch, right? And he knocks over everything. And, and that's what they are hearing if they're listening well. And now if you read this verse again, because right after he says, but you have made it in out of robbers, verse 18, and when the chief priest and the scribes heard it, They kept looking for a way to kill him. They understood, right? They understood exactly what Jesus just said to them. All right, are you ready for your last piece of bread? In the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And then Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. What is the fig tree? in this situation. The fig tree is the temple. The fig tree is Jerusalem. And so when Jesus curses this fig tree, he's not really mad at a fig tree that didn't give him figs. Jesus is enacting a real life parable here, right? And you don't know it if you don't know how Mark likes to craft his narrative, right? The Mark wants to start a story fill in another story and then end that first story and give you this bigger picture that you can't fully understand unless you put all three together, right? All three pieces together. Now, suddenly, this fig tree thing is not so weird. It's a little weird, but it's not as weird as it was, right? Because now it's not Jesus acting like a child. I have a friend who calls the the temple clearing Jesus' temple tantrum, right? Uh, it's It's not Jesus acting like a child, this is, this is Jesus predicting what, in fact, will happen some 40 years later, right? For those who don't know, in about 40 years from this moment, in the year 70 AD, the Romans are going to come in 
and they will destroy this temple. And so what then does the fig tree represent? What did the fig tree look like? What do you remember? How was it described? It was withered, but at first, what, what, how did it look? It, was, it had leaves. It was green. It looked like it should be fruitful, and yet it was producing no fruit. What does the temple look like in Jesus' mind? Right? Jesus is saying, hey, this temple is just like that fig tree, folks. It looks green. It looks flowering. It looks like it should be producing something, and yet it is barren. What's going on on the inside is emptiness. And Jesus is saying, the end is near. Maybe if you want to put yourselves into Jeremiah, maybe he's saying, there's still time. Repent, turn, listen, right? Bring God into your midst. But he's also saying, destruction is nigh. Right? Destruction is near and we're at the end. Now, uh, I'll, I'll end with a couple last ideas here and then, and then we can decide what we want to do next. Um, there's, a, there's a difficulty with this. And this is where our kind of earlier work comes into play. Because it turns out that Matthew and Luke do not tell the story in the same way. Um, Matthew also has a cursing of the fig tree, but it doesn't happen in this order. In Matthew, Jesus, after his triumphal entry, goes into Jerusalem, shows up at the temple, and the first thing he does is clear the temple right there that night, that day. Which, remember, what did Mark do? Mark had Jesus go and look at the temple and kind of explore it and kind of say, oh, interesting. And then it was very late, so he went back to Bethany. And he cleanses the temple the next day. So Matthew has Jesus clear the temple on a different day than Mark does. And Matthew's fig tree cursing is different. For Matthew, Jesus clears the temple first. Then the next day, as he's coming in from Bethany, he notices the fig tree, gets upset with the fig tree, curses the fig tree, and the fig tree withers immediately, right there on the spot, and the disciples notice it. Right? So now, if you read the Gospels in one particular way, in a way where you demand chronology, right? where you demand modernistic, bio- biographic ways of reading, what you're going to say right now is, oh, now we've got a problem. Because there's a contradiction here. Jesus can't curse the, destroy, you know, clear the temple on one day and then do it again on the next day. It has to be one or the other. And he can't curse the fig tree on one day and then have it withered the next day. And the disciples didn't notice it. But then in the other gospel, they noticed it wither immediately. That's a contradiction. What are we going to do? Oh, no, my gospels are destroyed. I can't be a Christian anymore. Right? No. <laughs> that... That, unfortunately, is, is where some people will go, right? Because they have a particular view of what the Gospels need to be, and then the Gospels don't fit that view, and then suddenly they're at a loss because they don't know how to read their Gospels anymore. And what we're doing right now is building a foundation to say, actually, that's not what the Gospels are at all, and that's not how they're written. And so when you find things like this, it's okay. You don't need to worry about it, and you don't need to fix it. There's actually nothing to fix because... This is not what they're writing for. Is Matthew's purpose different than Mark's purpose? I don't think so. I think he just chose, I think he didn't like Mark and sandwiches. Right? He, didn't, he didn't like the idea of splitting these stories up. It gets a little complicated and hard to follow sometimes. Like if you read The Cursing of the Fig Tree and stopped right there, you'd say, what is going on here? Right? And so I think Matthew's Cursing of the Fig Tree is very similar to Mark's. He's just ordered it differently. And that doesn't actually make a big difference for us in terms of the larger point, the character of Jesus and what he's doing in his ministry, even though that may leave you a little unsettled because you want everything to fit together really nicely and be a nice big puzzle. But that's not the way our Gospels are written. 
and there's nothing that we can really do about it, right? Except accept it. Luke is even interesting, more interesting. Luke doesn't have a cursing of the fig tree at all, but he does have a parable about a fig tree and how when you look at the fig tree and its signs, it will tell you the season that you're in. And Jesus tells that parable just as he's describing the destruction, the oncoming destruction of Jerusalem. I don't know if Luke has moved an actual cursing into a parable or if Luke just doesn't want to tell the cursing story or what, but, but it's interesting that they all do this in a slightly different way. And, and my bigger point to you is, is, is this, so that each gospel is written for a particular audience with a particular theme and point and kind of style in mind. And if we try to read them like modern narratives and fit them together into the puzzle that we want them to be, we're probably going to come up short a lot of the time. But the good news is we don't need to do that because when we recognize that these are portraits and that Mark is a painter, right? Painting a picture of Jesus for us, giving us this grand narrative and perspective, being very intricate and careful about the way he puts his narrative together to say, look at this little thing here and look at this beautiful thing here and look at the way Jesus handles this and you see this grand painting that Mark has produced and you put that next to Matthew and next to Luke and next to John, you get this richer, fuller Jesus that you don't need to kind of melt down and mix together into one big Jesus because actually you lose something when you do that. And we have something much richer and deeper when we put them side by side and see these various perspectives and these portraits. And so what it comes down to is reading these Gospels on their own terms and not on the terms that we would like to read them on in our own. All right, that is where I have wrapped things up for tonight. It's 8.51 or somewhere around then. So, yeah, so if parents need to go pick up their kids, then, then by all means, please do that. And if you need to go, if you have other obligations, by all means, if we want to do maybe three questions or something like that, we could do that and then call it a night and I'll stick around to talk more. So, yes, please. Yeah. But it also reminded me of the saying when Jesus talks about being sent or parents. That's also a very popular thing. So not only did he say it verbally, he gave them a visual depiction. So Jesus was saying, you know, as a master teacher, yeah. you say it for the honor and honor, then you show a visual, and he kept going and explaining it over and over so that they would possibly get it. I, I fully agree with that, right? So if you couldn't hear that, Jesus, Jesus probably gave the same message in various ways, right? He acts it out, he speaks it. Uh, he speaks the same message in various ways. Many of the parables, I think, have similar points to them. So, yeah, very good. Yeah, I have a question. Yeah, um, I, the, the concept of the fig tree, I guess, it showed up a couple of times, and it, it conjured up, I don't know if there's a similar theme going on with it, because I think at the beginning of John, um, there's a moment where he says, hey, I saw you underneath the fig tree. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll say that, like, the thought was that the fig tree offered, like, coverage and that he was maybe hiding under the fig tree, which is... Uh, No, probably not. Probably in that case, in John, the fig tree represents a place of Torah study, right? That it would be... That John is probably trying to conjure up an image of... um, It's Nathaniel, I think, right? Nathaniel, who's um, sitting there. Yeah, exactly, right? Um, 
who's, who's sitting under that fig tree studying his Bible, essentially, because that would have been a typical image. And you're right also to point out that the fig tree, if you read through your Old Testament well, comes up all the time and is often used in, this, in prophetic situations to represent Israel. Right, So, oh, you've got bad figs and good figs. There are different prophets who, who run with that metaphor. So, yes, the fig tree is a very common image and metaphor. It doesn't always mean the same thing. It can mean different things, but it would be a very normal metaphor for them to hear at the same time. All right, last question. We'll call it a night. Okay, um, I think for me that it, um, it makes God um, so much grander, so much bigger, because um, when I was thinking of him moving them along with the Holy Spirit, writing the, the word, yeah. um, that it sort of seemed as if that's one setting. But he, he worked through everything, through many people talking to that person, that person getting it this way, that the Holy Spirit was working through all of that. Yeah. So it, it just builds my faith. Good. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I think it's... We, we, we wish, in some ways, that the Bible was written directly to us, right, for our own time. But we have to remember that there were other people who read the Bible before us, and it's a little bit arrogant of us to imagine that the Bible is written directly. It had to make sense to them, too, and it had to be written in their terms in order then to eventually get to us, right? And once we understand it on their terms, then we can translate it into our world in our terms. And that's what I want to be able to provide for you. So thank you for that. Thanks, everyone. You've just listened to the West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit thewestsidechurch.com or laicc.net.